This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. For the last decade, I've been a newspaper reporter. And lately, I'm just finding it hard to keep up with the news. As of today, simple possession of marijuana is no longer illegal. It can be hard to make sense of things. Investigators spent nine hours in the consulate. Disappearance or murder. I want to change that, at least a little. I hope you'll join me for Frontburner, a daily podcast from CBC News. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Dante, Anine, Boujou, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Every week, it's my privilege to bring you community, culture, and conversation with Indigenous artists, activists, writers, singers, elders, youth thinkers, and doers. And as we bid farewell to 2018, it seemed like a perfect time to look back and listen to those who won awards and accolades, became bestsellers, and made breakthroughs. These songs were collected at a time when when our songs were actually illegal to be performed in public. That's always been my dream, to have a film done in our own community, in our language. I've received messages from young Indigenous people who have found the book to be enlightening. Yeah, I couldn't ask for more than, than that. And I also think we're smart enough to know that what we contribute is worthwhile too. You know, we write like we mean it. Today on Radio Indigenous, cultural newsmakers meet the class of 2018. First up, a musician whose inspiration came from the past. Jeremy Dutcher's album began in a dusty museum archive where he found songs not heard in decades and weaved them into shape-shifting sounds of the past and present. The operatic tenor and composer blended traditional Wolastowiag melodies with classical compositions and electronic music. The result is Wolastowiag Lintu Waganawa, or Our Maliseet's Songs. And what were once songs on ancient wax cylinders were turned into a Polaris Prize-winning album in 2018. Jeremy is from the Tobique First Nation in New Brunswick, and we spoke earlier this year. So tell me how your journey to create this album began. Well, uh, you know, as you said, it really started as sort of a seed that was planted almost, you know, over five years ago now by uh, one of my elders named Maggie Paul. And she was encouraging me, you know, to to learn about our old songs. And we, she said, you know, if you really want to know about the old traditional, like the old, old songs, you got to go to the archive because there sits this collection. So these songs were collected on wax cylinders um, by this guy named uh, William Meshling, who went and lived in our community for about seven years and collected all of this uh, wealth of, of material, over 100 different songs. So she she said, sort of, go to those archives. And when your elders tell you to do something, you, uh, you listen. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so, uh, so that sent me on a path um, that is culminating in this, uh, in this uh, upcoming record. So this uh, archive she was talking about, that was the National Museum of History. What did you do there? So, uh, yeah, I just showed up. On the door and uh, on the doorstep, and uh, they, for some reason, let me in, which was great. Uh, (laughs) 
but as soon as I sat down uh, and was able to like sit with these recordings and archives for a couple weeks, it was really a profound, profound experience. So these uh, these recordings that were taken 110 years ago, uh, this was before we had records, any of that technology. This is some of the earliest recording technology uh, ever. Uh, and so it was done on these little wax cylinders, uh, which is like no bigger than like a water bottle or something. The sound waves are etched into the wax, and then you can read back the uh, the sound waves. And so that's the technology that they were recorded on. Unfortunately, um, as as you listen to it each time, it degrades the sound wave. And so you're unable to get the clarity each time you listen to it. And so thankfully, since then, they've put them onto reel-to-reel tapes and then digitized them quite recently. Take me back to that room at the National Museum of History. What was it like when you first heard these recordings, possibly for the first time in generations? That moment when I first heard these recordings was a pretty profound one. These recordings aren't really known in my community, except by the very few people um, that are the song carriers. For me, I'd never heard these songs growing up at all, and most people in my nation don't even know about them. And, you know, they're not just singing songs, but they're also, you know, telling jokes and laughing mm-hmm. and there's groups and you can really hear the life uh, in these voices. And for ancestors far past, it was really incredible to, to get a glimpse into that time period, you know, because this these songs were collected at a time when when our songs were actually illegal to be performed in public. You know, the potlatch ban was still in place, and so we weren't able to perform our traditions and our songs and our culture. And so this was one safe way to share that and to, and to engage in that that was sort of sanctioned by um, sort of the non-Indigenous governance just listening to it because you've sampled some of that in the song that we're going to hear a little bit later and it really just gave me chills knowing that this was a voice that was 150 years ago did you get chills did it feel like you were you know being visited by ancestors yeah and you know it's great because i get to feel that every time i go out on stage now i get to feel that support and draw on their knowledge Jeremy, what's been the reaction from elders like Maggie about the album? (laughs) maggie's been so supportive um throughout this process yeah, and, and, you know, it's not just her, but so, so many people from the community have really um, supported me and, and given me words of encouragement. And there's this saying that we have, uh, so all my people, this is for you. And so that's for me what guides the work, is that this project has always been about um, accessibility for the Wollastook people to this archive and to our ancestral knowledge and power. Why is it important for you to incorporate and highlight language in your music? Our language on the East Coast, Wolustigwe, uh, it's 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 a severely endangered language, and so there's very very few of us that that are still speaking it. When yeah. you say that the language on the East Coast is in danger, what do you mean? How many speakers are left? So uh, it's it's very very hard to have specific numbers because our last sort of counting was actually in the 90s. So mm. so times have changed, but that number that we had back then was around 500 speakers. Now you know, it, sort of informal numbers, just hearing people talk. Uh, within the community, they're saying less than 100. Wow. Just in my family, you know, in the past couple of years, we've lost three fluent language speakers. Mm. Uh, and, and when we lose that, we don't, we're not losing words. You know, we're losing entire worldviews of, of, and ones that are so rooted within, within Wollastogwe uh, worldview that it's, that it's really, really essential. And, and it's really timely. And I think it's, time is running out almost. Yeah. And so there's an urgency for me in working in the language. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for your time today.
My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Rosanna. Jeremy Dutcher's latest album is called Our Malicites Songs. Jeremy is working on a collaboration with Bear Witness and Toolman from A Tribe Called Red. They're planning a concert tour with fellow Indigenous artists, a violinist Respectful Child, and Edmonton's DJ Creation. So keep your ears open for that. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM 169. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. And speaking of language, every week our new podcast, First Words, will teach you some Indigenous languages. Brought to you by the team here at Unreserved, each episode, a guest of the week will tell you a bit about their language, how they learned it, and teach you a few words. Here's a sneak listen to an episode coming out in the new year. What I've committed myself to is using as much of the language as I can every single day in and around our house, and that is a lot of fun. And so every day, our little boy Edzazi, so his name is Edzazi, and Tlicho Dene, that means marrow, because marrow is the heart of the bone. And when my dad, Jack, was, was hunting, he would always save the thigh bones for my mom, and he would cook the thigh bones, and he would feed her the marrow, and it was one of the most romantic anythings I'd ever seen in my entire life. The one and only author, storyteller, and one of my favorite in Dig and I, Richard Van Camp. He'll be hosting an episode of First Words that will hit the pod waves on January 1st, 2019. An excellent way to bring in the new year. If you want to hear it, head over to cbc.ca slash podcasting or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to ours. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM 169. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today on the show, we're looking back at some cultural changemakers we met on this show in 2018, like my next guest, who's also been looking back at her own year. Recently, she tweeted, You can do this. Write your book. Ten years ago, I had just received my GED. I thought being a receptionist would be good. I thought teaching high school would be good. And then I decided to be a writer. I had comma splices. I didn't know tense. I didn't know about tropes. And I'm reflecting on the year. Published a New York Times bestseller. Emma Watson held my book posted a selfie with it, made editor's choice at New York Times, bought my baby's winter jackets without a thought, although the Dillard's employee was racist. Let me say that you can do this. Those are musings from Therese Marie Mayette. She published her debut memoir, Hardberries, in 2017, but she couldn't have predicted its overwhelming success. Her memoir reflects the lasting impacts of intergenerational trauma and genocide on Indigenous peoples. Last year, Heartberries was met with rave reviews and quickly became a New York Times bestseller, among many other accolades and recognition. Mayette is from Seabird Island, British Columbia, but she joined me from her home studio in Lafayette, Indiana. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Now, your memoir deals with the trauma that you have survived. Uh, In it, you are candid about abuse that you experienced as a child. You discuss your mental health. And you're open about your struggles with child and family services as a single mother. What was it like to release something so personal out into the world? I 
think it was terrifying. And um, I think it felt combative at first, um, which mm-hmm. is why the beginning passages are pretty aggressive, because I was taking on stereotypes and stigmas that I had lived through. And um, and then the rest of it was trying to, like, actualize the truth of that experience and that, you know, within all of those stereotypes is a real story, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. 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 What was happening in your life when you decided to start writing this book? I think um, things had settled down in my life. I found a nice, normal guy <laughs> to date, and I was... Um, trying to start my life as a graduate student and I think that's why I was kind of shaken out of it by memories of my past and I think we only um, receive what we can really handle and I and I think at that moment in my life I was ready to handle my history, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Much of the book um, takes place in a mental institution and um, your experience there. Why did you want to ground the story there? Um, because I think there I experienced the the most conflict concerning my culture and how I wanted to exist in in real time in spaces where um, I have no access to my my culture and my community and in those spaces of mental health there there weren't any um, First Nations counselors and there weren't any um, people who understand um, genocide and what, what it looks like to come from a culture that has um, thrived in spite of so much. Maybe we could hear a little bit uh, from the book. Sure. Um, and this is from Indian Sick, which I wrote in um, Behavioral Health Service Building in El Paso, Texas. The art room was all colored paper, glue, and glitter. The pool was stagnant. The birds outside offended me, domestic but free. All the rooms were stark white, but the lighting was dim, so everyone looked bleaker. A dull blue stripe ran along every room for the invalids to follow. They gave me Ambien, and I walked the line, stopping at every barred window. I wanted to hear the world, but the glass was too thick. It was funny and hurtful to see the women walking past my room to glimpse at me and assess what type of crazy I was. Every few minutes, I saw a new girl who looked sad or angry. We mirrored each other's blank stares. It was nice to feel at home in that odd place. I tidied my room like I never do at home. That's Therese Marie Mayette reading from her first book, the best-selling memoir, Heartberries. Such vivid pictures that you that you have written in this book. Did writing uh, play a role at all in, in your recovery? Um, you know, sometimes it, the physical act is a way to, for me, it was a way to avoid doing my workbook and group therapy and doing things that maybe that might have been more productive for my health. But ultimately, writing the truth of what I experienced was something kind of shocking, mm-hmm. you know, because I had never written about my abuse as truth. I had always fictionalized it, or I was writing it far removed. And I think I was really forced to deal with myself, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was, so, so you create this beautiful book, you birth it out into the world, it's this wonderful gift that people have picked up and have really, um, it's really affected many people who read it. What was the initial response when you started sharing your book with people in your life? 
Well, um, when I showed Casey, my husband, the book is, uh, you know, there are some passages that are really hard for him to read, like how we would fight over something as simple as cold toast, you know, and what it really meant to me was looking back at my life and knowing that my mother never received the service she deserved Mm -hmm. because she was Native, you know? Being confronted with that in real time with my husband watching, um, all he saw was somebody crying over a toast, you know, over not getting the toast right. Mm -hmm. And, um, And I had to explain the story of, like, going to restaurants with my mother, and we only had money for fries or something like that. And uh, we'd have to drive a long way just to get a place where they would serve us um, decently. And decently, I mean, actually just give us the physical thing, you Mm -hmm. know, that we're asking for. And they would ignore her, you know. And to see your own mother be degraded is, like, it still makes me want to tear up, you know, because... You're powerless as a child to fight for your mother. Those memories were really good to me, but those memories of what she experienced, um, they really, I'm carrying them, you know? Mm -hmm. And trying to explain that to him in real time never worked, but him seeing it on the page made him empathize in a way that he hadn't before. The book has, um, the response to the book has, of course, has been tremendous. As we said, you were on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. That must have been so crazy. Uh, noted feminist writer Roxane Gay gave you a five-star review on Goodreads. And actor Emma Watson, Hermione, for the Harry Potter fans out there, mm-hmm. picked your book for her book club. What's it like to have this kind of response for your first book? It's unbelievable. I just don't believe it. So <laughs> I haven't processed it. But the thing I, I do believe and I do feel is like, when I read, and then, you know, I might be surrounded by Native students, right? And last time I went to, I think, University of um, Minnesota Morris or something like that, and this um, guy at my lunch and a young Native student, he said, you know, seeing you do that makes me feel like I could do that. <sighs> and then and I said, yeah. And then I realized, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's that joy that comes across your face when you're like yeah you could do this and and there's a joy in his face mm-hmm. and I think possibility you know like that's what I believe now. Those I believe, are the best gifts aren't they? Yeah. I love that. I love when that yeah. happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your book and book spot you mentioned Tommy Orange um, also here in Canada Billy Ray Belcourt, Joshua Whitehead and many mm-hmm. others have been receiving a lot of positive attention. It seems every time I turn around there's another book coming out. Why do you think people, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, are reading these books now? It's really hard to say because Natives have been writing, you know? Like, they've been doing it. So, I don't know. I think Tommy and I came out, we hit the ground running. So, like, nobody was going to stop us from trying. And we tried for big things. And, um, And there's something about the momentum you can carry with a community, right? Mm -hmm. And I can't even identify what's so different. I just think we really are benefiting from um, all the people who wrote before us and and, uh, paved the way. And I also think we're smart enough to know that what we contribute is worthwhile too. You know, we write like we mean it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Therese, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And your beautiful (laughs) book.
Thank you. Therese Marie Mayette is originally from British Columbia, but is now based in Lafayette, Indiana. Her debut book, Heartberries, has so far been on the finalist lists for the 2018 Hillary Weston Writers Trust Prize for Nonfiction, the Governor General's Literary Award, long-listed for the 2019 RBC Taylor Prize, and has been on many bestseller and editor's choice lists. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Manifesto, Memoir, and Therapy. This collection has already won a pile of accolades and awards for its groundbreaking poetry and, and author. This Wound is a World is the debut collection from Billy Ray Belcourt. Raised by his grandmother on the Drift Pile Cree Nation in Alberta, Billy Ray Belcourt is a brilliant academic. He is a Ph.D. student at the University of Alberta and a 2016 Rhodes Scholar who holds a Master's in Women's Studies from Oxford. But it's the 23-year-old's poetry that has people talking. Among several awards is Canada's most illustrious poetry honour the $65,000 Griffin Poetry Prize, making him the youngest person ever to win the annual prize. Billy Ray Belcourt joined me from Edmonton. Watch Tanse Billy Ray. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I want to start with something that you wrote in your book's prologue. You Mm -hmm. said, This Wound is a World is a book obsessed with the unbodied. Mm -hmm. Explain what you mean by that. So unbodied was a concept that I had been thinking hard with when, as I was writing the book. And I wanted a word that captured the sense of disembodiment that a lot of Indigenous peoples experience. So the sense that our bodies are not ours or that they're too caught up in a social and political history that repeats to feel like something that we can adequately manage. I think one of the most clear-cut examples of this collective sense of unbodiedment, if you will, was when um, the acquittal was handed down in the Gerald Stanley case and sort of Indigenous social media was flooded with expressions of sorrow and rage and sadness and upset and I remember this sense that hundreds of years of anger had sort of ballooned in my chest in that moment and I think that that was a an experience that only Native people felt and could have felt. So unbodied was a word that I tied myself to to try to elaborate these sets of experiences. Uh, you're a very, very clearly an intelligent man. Uh, you, you think critically, you write critically. Uh, you went to Oxford. Tell me about a time, Billy Ray, where where you found poetry was something that you that helped you relate, that helped you move through the world. Right. I came to poetry by way of the university because the university wasn't actually allowing me to position myself as an emotional subject. I remember I started watching videos on YouTube of spoken word poets in the U.S., primarily 
spoken word poets of color. And there was this immediate sense of connectivity that the performance of emotion on their part was something unmatched in the university. As an undergraduate student, I was sort of floored by that. Mm -hmm. So what was it when you say that your poetry was sort of that seed was sown in, in university. What mm-hmm. was it like for you to exist in that space as a Cree queer boy from Driftpile Cree right. Nation? I felt like I, my personality still hadn't fully emerged mm-hmm. when I went to university. I felt like there is this added sense of diminishment because I hadn't been able to be my complete self. And so it was very much a vulnerable and sometimes clumsy and awkward journey to to really living or having a queer indigenous life. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a part of your book that addresses your time totally. at Oxford. Mm-hmm. Did, were you writing that as you were going through this, you know, this discovery of self and how you fit in this, you know, this very high level of academia or what was right. going on with you when you were writing that piece? The, the poem called The Oxford Journal was written primarily while I was in the UK. And as these quite surprising things were happening, so I documented instances of racism at a cafe, how Indigenous peoples were appearing in the course readings, how my peers conceptualized Native people. And there was this sort of dissonance that I identified in in the people there where they constructed themselves as intelligent, worldly, cultured people, while on the other hand, were actively perpetuating these quieter forms of racism, microaggressions, etc., that piled up and essentially forced me to have to write about them. And so there was a sense of alienation. I didn't have the communities of care that I had in Alberta and in Canada, in, in terms of like class and economic status, there weren't many people who had grown up in working class families like I did. And that absolutely affects how one is in the world or how one perceives things in the world. So it was troubling and difficult. But I think in the end, my time at Oxford allowed me to really double down on my desire to pursue things that would enable my flourishing and also bring me in close proximity to a community of Native and queer people. That sounds very lonesome. Yeah, and I think one of the operative emotions in this book is loneliness. Mm -hmm. And so what I was trying to do there was to not only give attention to the difficulties and precarities of loneliness, so that could mean a cultural loneliness or a geographic loneliness, uh, existential loneliness, all of which I experienced at Oxford, for example. But also I think that, and I detail this in the epilogue, loneliness is also perhaps a sign that we're actually enacting the norms, the styles of behavior of a world to come, that we actually are desirous for something that doesn't exist yet. And to me, that is empowering. Mm. Billy Ray, who do you write poetry for? I very much wrote This Wound is a World for other queer Indigenous people, particularly youth. I think that the poetry world in Canada and perhaps elsewhere is not necessarily attuned to young readers. 
And so it was, of course, an enormous task to try to write a book that would get into the hands of people who were around my age and younger. And I received messages from, from young Indigenous people who are sort of grappling with their sexual and gender identities who have found the book to be really enlightening and empowering and inspiring. Yeah, I couldn't ask for more than, than that. What do they say to you, these young people? So I had one person from a reserve near mine tell me via Instagram. <laughs> That's how you how you found me <laughs> online. That's how uh, the young people are talking these days. <laughs> totally, totally. And he said that his mom had gotten him my book for Christmas because she knew he was going through some things. And he said that he read the book every day since he got it. Wow. Yeah, and I was immediately moved by that. That was really lovely to hear. Billy Ray, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it was my pleasure, absolutely. Billy Ray Belcourt is Cree from the Drift Pile Cree Nation in Alberta. As well as the Griffin Prize, he has also taken home CBC's Best Poetry Book Award of 2017, the P.K. Page Founders Award for Poetry, and the Indigenous Voices Award. That's a bit from one of the most recognizable actors on big and small screens anywhere. To enter Cardinal as Black Shawl in Dances with Wolves. But she has almost 100 movie and television credits on her reel, and there's no sign that she's slowing down. The Cree Métis actor has been bringing characters to life for almost 50 years. In 2018, Tantu was one of 928 new members from diverse backgrounds who were invited by the Film Academy to join its ranks. We welcomed Tantu just before she headed off to the Toronto International Film Festival and talked about her start and story, her most memorable characters, and the future of Indigenous filmmaking. Now, welcome to the show, Tantu. Thank you. Here in Canada, there are many, many more movies being made by Indigenous people than we see, you know, on the other side of the medicine line. Why do you think we should be the ones to tell these stories? Well, there are stories. Mm Mm-hmm. It's our lives. It's, you know, it's it's coming from us. And uh, we have a lot of things to straighten out in, in this war that's gone on in the creation of Canada. There's been a definite attempt to, to obliterate us. So there's a lot of things that have to be sorted out. And and we know so much more about our story than the outsiders do. How Indigenous is Indigenous enough? I mean, we see this playing out on in social media where people are saying that unless it's a full Indigenous cast, written by, made by, directed by, then it somehow is less than. Well, you know what? I started in 1970 and 71. Yeah. And that was my ideal. We have to tell our own stories. But there weren't any filmmakers from our world that were around me. Gordon and I were basically the only Indigenous faces 
that were on this set when uh, when I first started out. And of course, the Gordon you mentioned earlier is Gordon Tatusis, right? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And yes, that's ideal that we have a whole community. That's always been my dream to have uh, a film done in our own community, mm-hmm. in our language. So Zachariah up there in the north, he just, oh man, I saw his work. Uh, fast runner and and I just oh it just felt so good that mm-hmm. was absolute medicine to see that but he had a white guy helping him mm-hmm. you know hey 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 hey, hey. <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. and um, we are in the process of getting to that place had I decided at that time well you know all our stories have to be done by us mm-hmm. well how long would it have taken me to be able to get there because our filmmakers didn't start showing up for a long, long time. They were getting educated. They were getting born. They're, you know, <laughs> getting yeah, their yeah. diapers changed. <laughs> for real, yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm, I think we're right on track. Now, we heard a clip from uh, one of most your most recognizable roles, and that was um, Dances with Wolves. And I remember when that movie came out, every Indigenous person I knew went to see it because every Indigenous person we knew was in it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I I remember just being so struck because all of the Indigenous characters were so fully formed, you might say more than the main character in some cases. And it was such a breakthrough movie mainstream-wise because it had real Indigenous people who spoke a real Indigenous language and had real personalities and struggles. What was it like to be part of that cast? It was uh, work. Mm. I loved that we were using the Lakota language. That was a lot of work. Um, To work in another language in the midst of a scene with everything going on, it's really tricky. It's like driving on the left-hand side in Ireland with a stick shift. (laughs) And the woman who did the wardrobe for the principal characters, she did it all old style. Mm. She brain tanned the highs. She used all original elements to make our clothes. Wow. And did they ever feel right mm. stepping into them? They're, they they had an aura of their own. Mm. They had a pride in being alive, and it was just such a pleasure to to get into those clothes. Because for a lot of time, you know, there's there's not all that much love and effort mm-hmm. put into a wardrobe and all that kind of stuff. So that movie came out in 1990, and of course, that was a long time ago, and a lot's changed since then in the business. How has your perspective of of this movie changed over time? No, not really, because at the time, I thought, well, you know what? This might just be the end of white people playing indigenous characters. Yeah, That's what I was hoping would happen mm. out of this. And I was also very pleased with um, the beauty of, of the people and the life that was portrayed and uh, I felt like that was a positive energy that that our communities could certainly use. 
Now, at the time of uh, back in the day, Dances with Wolves, uh, it, it, uh, there weren't a lot of, we didn't see a lot of Indigenous actors in these movies, as you had said. And um, there was Graham Greene, Floyd Rudkrow, Westerman, Wes Studi. Uh, so mostly men. Uh-huh. Did you? Were you like the only woman? Back? <laughs> what, what was that like to be one of the only, the few Indigenous women who were who were making a career out of movie making? Uh, <laughs> Big sigh. Yeah. Yes, yes. And and where were our men? They weren't saying, "Well, you know." There's Augie Schellenberg was one actor who stood up and said, my wife has to be in this scene. And he had to fight the director and the producers so that I could be in this one scene in black robe. Mm. And then you see the movie and they cut me in half. So, uh, you know, throughout the industry, women have had a specific place to be put. And those are the accepted women for us, we are so, oh, my God. I, I just run out of adjectives, really, to, to try to explain or describe the absolute just disregard for Indigenous women and what our value is and what could we possibly have to contribute to this story. And it's, that's been a constant pain and a constant thorn all along the way. You know, you have to have a lot of patience to, you know, the the patience of the elders to say this will change and change is coming and it's bit by bit. We can't do it all at once. And now (laughs) it's happening. Mm -hmm. It's been happening. Mm -hmm. And our women are getting stronger and stronger and getting more and more evident. And finally, we will end up in the place that we're meant to be. Mm -hmm. Now, we know the diversity problem in Hollywood is well known. Um, There was even a hashtag campaign called Oscars So White that started in 2015. But this year, you were one of 928 new members from diverse backgrounds who are invited by the Film Academy to join its ranks, which means you get to vote on who should win an Academy Award. You refer to this as a moment in progress. What Mm -hmm. did you mean by that? Well, I was hoping to get on this back in the 80s, Mm. but I was blowing into a big wind. So it's finally arrived. Something that um, I was hoping to see a couple or more decades ago. Yeah. And because there's so much to do. Yeah. There's so much remains. Yeah. Okay. Now the doors and windows are open for more diverse people. But we really got to get our numbers up. I don't know really what's in that world, but I see a lot of attempts to really open it up and set it in a better place so that there actually is more diversity, not mm-hmm. just a lip service. So I guess I guess it's a moment that we haven't arrived, but we're on the way. But we're on the way and you're kicking down doors, so... Yes, and opening windows. And opening windows. <laughs> But thank you so much, Tantu. Thank you, Rosanna. Wonderful. Tantu Cardinal is Métis and was born in Fort McMurray, Alberta. She has been in over 100 films and television series.
That's it for this week's episode of Unreserved. We'll be back in this radio space next week for more community culture and conversation. This episode was produced by Zoe Tennant, Kyle Muzika, Stephanie Cram, and Anna Lazowski. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Thank you for listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. Happy New Year. say. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.